morning. Would you turn in your Bibles with me to Matthew chapter 2. Matthew chapter 2. I was trying to think of um, how many Christmas stories have I heard in my life? You know, how many sermons have I heard on the Christmas story? How many stories have I heard or sermons have I heard on uh, Mary and Joseph and the birth of John the Baptist? How many sermons have I heard on Anna and Simeon? How many sermons have I heard on the Magnificat? How many sermons have I heard on the life of Christ alone? I mean, it's like, you know, when you sit down and think about um, his, his, um, his baptism, the temptation, uh, his choosing of the apostles, his, uh, his Sermon on the Mount. How many sermons have I heard on the Sermon on the Mount? Um, his calling of Nicodemus and the fact that the, one of the greatest verses in the world, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. How many sermons have I heard on the triumphal entry and, and the transfiguration and, and the upper room and the betrayal of Judas and, and the denial by Peter? How many sermons have I heard on his crucifixion? How many sermons on his death, his burial, his resurrection, his ascension? So many sermons. And I was thinking, you know, in, in five decades, I've been a believer in Christ four decades, um, how many Christmas stories have I heard? And how do I keep it from becoming, oh, it's old hat. I already got that. I'm familiar with that. How many times have you heard the sermons um, on the wise men that came to worship Christ? Because that's where we're going to be this morning. How many times have you heard it? Does it fill you with excitement? Does it fill you with joy? Does it fill you with wonder? Does it fill you with worship? You know, Jesus had uh, challenged the Pharisees. He said that uh, they praise me with their lips but their hearts are far from me. Lord, I pray that that would not be the case uh, this morning as we look at this passage. So as we look at this passage this morning, we're not going to do anything revolutionary. We're going to ask a series of questions. And whenever I go to a passage of Scripture, I ask myself a series of questions. You, uh, Pastor Doug did a, um, a class on how you study the Scriptures just um, in the fall. And he talked about observation, I would assume, interpretation and application. You would look at what does the passage say, what does it mean, and then how, by God's grace, can I apply that in my life? So those are the questions that we're going to be looking at as we look at this passage this morning. And I pray that we can find something encouraging in this passage. I pray that we would see a new line of worship in this passage. I pray that we'll see something old. I pray that we'll see something new. But more than that, I pray that we'll walk out of here with a greater aspect of the love for Christ for who he is, for what he's done, and what uh, he deserves in our lives. Would you read with me here in Matthew chapter 2? It says, Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who was born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star when it arose, and we have come to worship him. Is that why you're here this morning? I ask myself, I ask you, is, have we come here this morning to worship him? 
There are four themes I want you to consider this morning as we look at these first 12 verses. The first is that there are some that come to worship Christ in anticipation. They're anticipating worship. And I think that's where you're going to see these wise men. They're coming anticipating that they're going to find the Savior, the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords. Well, there's a second group of people that we're going to look at, not only those that are anticipating worship, but the second are those that seem more ambivalent in worship. They seem indifferent when it comes to worship. I pray that that wouldn't be you this morning. Well, there's a third group of people or third person that we're going to look at this morning who seems arrogant in his worship. He doesn't seem like he really wants to worship Christ alone. There's an antipathy. There's an anger that is there. And the last thing I want you to consider this morning is those that adore Christ in worship. There's an adoration of Christ in worship. So anticipation, ambivalence, arrogance, adoration. Well, why don't we look at a couple of words here as we begin this passage. It says in um, chapter 2, verse 1, it says, now after. You know, our... um, Nativity scenes oftentimes depict the wise men there when Christ is in the stable. And in all likelihood, that was not the case. In fact, the passage tells us it wasn't. Um, This could have been weeks, months. It could have even been a couple of years later after the wise men have found the Lord Jesus Christ. Or nativity scenes are a little wrong there. Now, the wise men saw the star when Jesus was born, and they started out on a journey. So this is after. And they came to Bethlehem of Judea. Bethlehem is about six miles uh, south of Jerusalem, and it, it marks where the tribe of Judah began. It's the Davidic line, and so that the Savior was going to be born in Bethlehem, as the writers have told us. The passage says here, now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the years of King Herod, we'll come back to him in a moment, it says, behold, wise men from the east. Um, Your version may say the word magi, you probably have heard that term, Uh, that's the Greek word for it. Uh, They refer to some type of priest or experts. Uh, We find them in the book of Daniel. Uh, They came from the east, so they came from Persia or Babylon, and Daniel talks about these wise men. Now they've come to a place where they have become astrologers, um, studiers of the sacred writings. They are people that are dream interpreters. They pursue wisdom. So they are studiers. They are looking for wisdom. And so what they were doing is they read the ancient text, and then they saw this star, and they marked out on a journey. Now, Persia or Babylon is about 800 miles east of Jerusalem. Of Bethlehem. So they started out on a journey, 800 miles, which is an amazing journey. Uh, This journey, if you travel 20 miles in a given day, would have taken them a minimum of 40 days to get to. So this is months later after Jesus has been born, maybe even years. So the wise men go on this pursuit. And it's interesting that this passage says, now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of King Herod, Herod the king, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem. And what did they ask? They asked, where is he? I thought it was kind of interesting that uh, the primary question that they asked was, where is he? They came to King Herod and they said, where is he who is born king of the Jews? They didn't ask who. Who is he that is born king of the Jews? That would have been the question I would have assumed that they would have asked. But they didn't ask that because they assumed that Herod, they assumed that the scribes and Pharisees knew who he was. They just wanted to know where he was. But Herod didn't know 
who he was because Herod was not prepared. He says, who or where is he who was born king of the Jews? He gave some very necessary information. They said that he was born. So they knew that he wasn't an adult at this time. This young person had been born. So Herod knew that, they had been, that this young person had been born recently. Who is he that was born king of the Jews? The title king of the Jews is interesting as well. Uh, Herod was considered king of the Jews. So it must have been a, an offense for these wise men to come and say, who is he who has been born king of the Jews? I am the king of the Jews. But Herod knew something that maybe we didn't know. Herod was not Jewish. Herod, Herod was an idiomite. Herod was not even Jewish by heritage. In fact, he had been appointed king by the occupying force, Rome. So the Jewish people looked to him as their leader only because Rome had put him there. They didn't look to him as the leader because of his heritage. So when he hears that there's a king coming from the Jews that is actually from the heritage of the Jews, he started to feel threatened. I really like their perception. It says this, for we saw. I don't know what happens to you when you come into this building, but do you come here seeking something? Do you come here looking to see Christ? Do you come here looking to find God? Well, these Wise men from 800 miles away are seeking. They saw something. They were perceiving that there was a Christ that was going to be born, and they were waiting for him. Now, the Christ has already been born. Are we looking to him? I had that question. Jesus has a star. They said his star. It's not just simply a star. It's his star. That God, in his sovereignty and his providence, chose to put the galaxies together, and he chose to put a star there. And I don't know if it was a specific star that just brightened up. Some say it was the Shekinah glory of God that led the Israelites through the desert in the Old Testament. And now the Shekinah glory lights up to light over the house where Jesus was going to be born. I don't know. The scripture doesn't tell us. But I can tell you that there was something pretty significant about this star. And they followed it. And they said it was his star. I really like their pursuit as well. I've already told you they came almost 800 miles away, 20 miles a day 40 days to get there, and they came with one purpose. You could see the purpose here. It says, where is he who was born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east, and what have we come? We have come to do what? To, to worship him. Are you here today in a desire to worship him? Are you here today to magnify him and to see him as the majestic one? Or are you here like the other two group of people that we'll find here in verse 3 and following? So it says this, when Herod, the king, heard of this, he was troubled. Why was he troubled? He was being threatened. And all of Jerusalem with him. It's interesting. Why was Jerusalem threatened? We'll talk about Herod in a moment. And what Herod did was this. He did not know who the king of the Jews was. He didn't even know where the king of the Jews was. So what did he do? He got his scribes and Pharisees. These are the religious leaders of the day. And he says, they're telling me that there's this king of the Jews going to be born. Where is he going to be born? So what they did was they rightfully went to, these scribes and Pharisees rightly went to Micah, 
And they said, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Now he's threatened. The chief priest had oversight of the temple activities. The scribes and Pharisees were the interpreters of the Old Testament. So they were the ones that knew the Old Testament. They knew the, uh, the information. But the second group of people I want you to consider is this. The wise men came in anticipation of worship. The scribes and Pharisees were antipathy. There was ambivalence in their worship. Why ambivalence? They read that the king had come. Did they look for him? No. Did they travel with the wise men afterwards? No. Did they do anything? No. It was inaction. It was indifference. They just didn't care. They weren't interested. They were do-nothings. They went back to life as it was. Oh, well, no passion, no purpose, no pursuit. They just heard that their Messiah has been born. And what did they do? They went back to work as usual. And I think what happens in church today is that sometimes we get ambivalent. Sometimes we just sit back, and I've heard this story before, yeah, 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 and we lose it. We know the information, but it does no transformation of our hearts. That's exactly what happened here with the ambivalence of these Pharisees and scribes. They heard that their Messiah was born, and they did nothing to follow it. They couldn't be bothered. It's amazing when you think about it, that the wise men came from 800 miles away. The scribes and Pharisees couldn't get six miles away to go see their Savior and King. The anticipation of the wise men, the ambivalence of the scribes and Pharisees, lead me to the arrogance of Herod. It says in verse 7, that Herod summoned the wise men secretly, interesting, and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem saying, go and search diligently for the child, little child, and when you have found him, bring me word, no one else, that I too may come and do what? Worship him. Worship him. Yeah, right. You know, Jesus was an absolute threat to Herod. See, Herod was the king, but he knew he was just appointed. He now is hearing that there's a Messiah that's coming through the loins of Jews, who's going to be a Jewish leader, who's going to be their Messiah, and he's being threatened. He's, in fr he's afraid. Herod was this guy. There are many Herods in the Bible. This one is called Herod the First or Herod the Great. Herod um, is a vicious and ruthless man. Uh, he's extremely suspicious. Um, antiquity tells us that he murdered several of his wives. He murdered several of his children. He would then kill every male child two years or under to try to rid the world of this Christ. He's a ruthless man. He did some amazing things. The temple that Jesus was going to be ministering in is the temple that he built, Herod built. He did a lot of things, Masada, all these great buildings, but he was just ruthless. You know what actually was heard to say? It was, it was said that when he died, he put it in his will 
that every male in the town would be slaughtered because he knew that the people would not grieve for him. He wanted somebody to grieve on the day that he died. That's the man that we're talking about here. Send me word so that I too may come and do what? Worship him. He doesn't want to worship Christ. There's an antipathy. There's an anger. There's, a, there's this hatred of God. He wants his power. He doesn't want to give it up. So there's anticipation of worship. The wise men going on this long journey. There's ambivalence in worship. I could read the word, the Pharisees and scribes, but I can do nothing. There's arrogance in worship. You know what? I hear that there's a Christ that's going to be born, but to be honest, I want to kill him. And then there's adoration in worship. He says, after listening to the king, verse 9, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. And when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, here it's not a stable, it's a house. Going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. See, now they got to the place where they could actually truly worship. The anticipation has now moved to adoration and worship. They actually have taken this 800-mile journey to see this Christ child, and now they have seen the Savior of mankind. What always amazes me when I think of this story is this. When they walked into Herod's palace, they're still digging out the ruins. I think they were digging out the ruins in the 60s. And I heard in 2007, they actually found his sarcophagus. So they actually found the ruins and they found his burial place in 2007. And it's palatial, this incredible place. When they walked into Herod's place, it was amazing. And then they walked into this common home. And they fell down and worshipped him. There was no note in here, if you saw it, no note that they fell down and worshipped Herod. What was it about Jesus? I know we got the little halo over his head. There was no halo. It's just a little baby. But there was something that God had done in their eyes and their hearts to see that the one that was standing before, or was laying before them, was special. I pray that that's true for you and true for me, that, oh, come, let us adore him. Adore him. What did they see in the worship? They worshiped him. That was their whole pursuit. What do I see in their worship? I see that they worshiped him as king. This little baby who can't even talk probably right now, they worship him as king. They submitted to him. They worship him in the fact that they're joyful. It's like Matthew can't get the words out, right? What does it say here? It says that he came and they worshiped him and said they rejoiced. Verse 10, rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. <laughs> he just couldn't stop himself. It's the joy that was running out of them as they finally have seen this baby. It's, he could have just said that they had joy. No. Their worship was joyful worship. Heartfelt. It came out of them. Just utterly amazing. They worshipped him submissively. They worshipped him joyfully. They worshipped him humbly. They fell down. But it wasn't just simply falling down on a knee. 
what they actually did was they prostrated themselves. They put their face down into the ground. Can you imagine these magi? These wise men are bowing down face in the dirt to a baby. They worshiped him in submission. They worshiped joyfully. They worshiped humbly. They worshiped sacrificially. They gave. You remember these three, these three gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. So let me blow up another one of our traditions. Uh, our first tradition is that the Magi were there in the, in the stable. They weren't. Um, the second tradition is that there are three we kings, three we three kings. Remember, I'm not going to sing it for you but this morning. Um, my family's telling me, please don't sing. <laughs> um, we three kings, in all likelihood, they're not kings. They are um, uh, and, um, advisors to kings, but they're not kings themselves. And there may have been so many more than just three. They bought three gifts. What were the three gifts? Gold. James Montgomery Boyce in his commentary gave some really good information about this. He says gold. Gold was appropriate for Jesus. Gold was the medal of kings. When the gold was presented to Jesus by the men of Persia, it acknowledged his right to rule in their lives. Some theologians actually think that God in his providence would take this very young couple who had almost no money and use these gifts from these Persians to help tear, care for the Lord Jesus Christ throughout his life. Maybe, I'm not sure. But clearly when they brought the gold, they were signifying that you're my king. You're my king. The second was frankincense. Your version may say incense. Now, if you go back to the Old Testament, that incense was mixed in with the meat offering, and it would produce a, a wonderful aroma to God. It was a way that we would worship. The incense was never mixed in the Old Testament with the sin offering. It was separate from the sin offering. The incense was pleasing to God, and it was not mixed with the sin offering. And what does it look to? It looks to the fact that Jesus Christ is the, the beautiful one that God his Father just looks to in love and adoration. He is also the sinless one because I am sinful and you are sinful. We need one who is not sinful. And Jesus Christ, that incense looks to the fact that he's holy and pure. So the gold looks to the fact that he's king. The incense looks to the worship of God and the fact that he's a sinless savior. And what does the myrrh look to? Death. The myrrh in that culture was used to embalm bodies. It actually says that when Jesus was buried, they used, Joseph of Arimathea used 100 pounds of myrrh and, oil and spices to prepare his body for burial. 100 pounds. So myrrh was used to embalm a body. I don't know about you, but we just heard about the wonderful news of having a new baby coming this year or next year. Can you imagine if the first gift that you received is embalming fluid? <laughs> that would be a little offensive, huh? But it wasn't. It wasn't odd. It wasn't strange because they knew that this baby had come here to die for you and to die for me. Gold was presented as the king. Incense was presented for worship, the sinless one. Myrrh was presented as an embalming fluid. Boyce gives us one other thought, which I thought was amazing. 
I forgot about this. You remember at the cross when Jesus was getting ready to be crucified? You know what was offered to him just before they nailed those things into his arm and his hands and his feet? They offered him wine. They offered him wine and myrrh mixed together. See, the myrrh was not just an embalming fluid. The myrrh, the myrrh was um, as a painkiller, an, pain an anesthetic. And you remember, Jesus said, no. I want to be in my full mind when I receive this. When I take your punishment, I want to be in my full faculties. Jesus didn't take that pain anesthetic for you. He didn't take that pain anesthetic for me. So I think of these, these four themes of worship. Anticipation. Maybe you're here this morning and you came here with anticipation of finding something new. Maybe it was this Christmas season that I, I hope something new happens. I pray that you found Christ this week. Maybe, and I hope that's not the case, that there's some of you here that um, are ambivalent when it comes to worship. Indifferent. Yeah, yeah, I've heard this before, but it does nothing for you. I've got the information in my head, but no one will ever be saved by right information. They need to be saved by heart transformation. Maybe, and I pray that there's no one here that is coming with antipathy and anger and arrogance in worship. I pray this morning that you come in adoration of the king. Who is Jesus to you? I wonder how your worship is this morning. If we think about the themes that are here in this passage, the first theme is this, that worship is something that you elevate. Every single person in this passage was worshiping something. The wise men were anticipating worshiping the king of the Jews. The scribes and Pharisees were worshiping their prestige. Herod was worshiping his power. The wise men eventually worshiped the prince of peace. St. Augustine said this. He said, God You've made us for yourself. And our hearts are going to be restless until we rest in you. Every one of us is worshiping something. We're elevating something. The question is, what you're worshiping and what you're elevating, is it satisfying to you? Herod died a miserable death. Disease-riddled body. Painful disgusting. All of the splendor, he didn't take it with him. And he went to a Christless eternity in hell. The scribes and Pharisees, for the most part, knew all the right information, but faith is not about right information. They had all the scriptures memorized. That's not enough. They had done the religious thing. It's not enough. The only thing that will bring a person to faith is a heart transformation and a submission to this king. And they didn't do it for the most part. And then there were the Pharisees, and then there were the uh, Magi. They worshiped you. So I wonder who you're worshiping this morning. See, true worship is more than just seeking. True worship is not found in indifference of your heart. True worship is not just found in external words. You heard it from Herod, I want to worship Christ. He didn't really mean it. True worship is admiration. It's love. 
It's esteem. It's adulation. It's faith. Faith is more than just knowledge. Satan knows the Bible better than we do. He's not saved. True knowledge and true faith is a movement of heart, but it's more than just that because the demon shuddered before Christ. To be moved is not enough. True faith is the fact that I have great knowledge, I'm moved in heart, and I bow my knee in trust of a Savior. I commit to him. The reality is this, that Christ came once as this little baby and then the adult and the gracious Savior, but there's going to be a day that he's going to come as the risen king, the authority, the judge. And every single one of us, young and old, will stand before God and have to give an account for our lives. And the Bible tells us that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. But saving faith is based on the decision that you make today. Will you choose him today? I wonder, how do you see Christ today? Do you see him as the available one, the adoring one, the accepting one? Do you see him as as beautiful? Do you see him as caring and compassionate? Do you see him as your deliverer? Do you see him as the one who gives you eternal life? Do you see him as forgiving and gracious? Do you see him as holy, as infinite? Do you see him as just and and king of kings and lord of lords and majestic? Do you see him as near? Do you see him as omnipresent and omnipotent and omniscient? Do you see him as royalty? Do you see him as your savior? Do you see him as truth? Do you see him as the only way, the truth and the life? Do you see him as God this morning? We have come to worship him. I pray this morning, there's not a person that walks out of this room that doesn't know who Christ is. If there is, I pray that you would be, as they were, humble enough to ask. They're leaders that are here. We would love to talk to you about it. I pray that this Christmas season is not just a season where I got some nice gifts and ate some great food and spent some time with family and friends. I pray that this Christmas season, you will see Christ for who he is, the matchless one, the majestic one, the merciful one for you and for me. Would you pray with me? Lord, this morning, as we gather together, Lord, I pray that we would see your son as the only wise king. There were no trappings that were here, no beautiful palace, no beautiful robes, no great food. It was just a little baby in a home, a common home. I thank you that you sent your son just to be like us because there are no kings in this room. There are no extremely rich people here in this room. We're just common people. I thank you for the fact that your grace is so amazing. Father, I was in the store the other day talking to a woman, and we were in line, and she was complaining about the line, and I said, she says that I know you're thinking the same, and I said, no, I'm thinking about the, the Prince of Peace and that goodwill towards men. 
And she said, bah humbug. And Lord, in some ways I laughed, but in another way I cried. Because out of her own heart, Father, I think she missed the reason for the season. She missed the Christ child. She missed the Savior of the world. I pray that we would not miss him today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.